it's a shame to spend tens of thousands, potentially tens of thousands of dollars to obtain a patent and then hang it on the wall and say, isn't that great? And not know what to do with the patent that they just got. Uh, that's, that's a disaster for the entrepreneurial economy in my mind. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Welcome to Episode 3, Season 2. Today we have a guest with a quite unique background. We're going to learn about his experience, his life, his profession, and most importantly, we're going to learn how to manage a patent, how to assert it, and how to profit from it. My name is Curtis Drogi. I live in the United States in the Lexington, Kentucky area. I'm 55 years old and I'm a patent agent and I run Tungsten IP as my full-time enterprise currently. And what drove you to this area, this, to this profession? Sure. So uh, it's, a, it's a long story, but I think it's an interesting one. At least I think it is. Um, I started off as a farmer and a mechanic and uh, uh, while I was in high school and after high school. And that's all I wanted to do was just to be a farmer and a mechanic. I never thought about going to college. Uh, but um, when I was uh, working as a mechanic, I had an injury. And I, I injured my back pretty, pretty severely. And so that caused me to rethink my plans because uh, farming and mechanicking required me to be very physical, very, very strong and in good health. And I decided that after that injury that I needed to uh, be a little more thoughtful about my career and think about something that I could do literally from a wheelchair if I had to. And so I, uh, and so I had one of those moments where I, I thought, What can I do? And uh, I had been uh, very hands-on. I was very good at repairs. And uh, my dad and I had designed farm equipment and built it in our shop in, through the years. And, um, and so I thought, well, I think I'm going to be a mechanical engineer. Uh, the thing was, when I made that decision to do that, and it was a decision, um, I was probably 20, 21 years old. And I couldn't even add fractions. And so I, when I talked to uh, the, a local community college about starting in a pre-engineering program, they strongly discouraged me. They said, your, your math test scores are terrible and you don't stand a chance. And so uh, instead of, you know, them, uh, instead of just drowning in, in my, my ignorance at that point, mm -hmm. I went into a, to a basic math class, a basic algebra class, and then an intermediate algebra class, and then a college algebra and trigonometry uh, at the same time. And uh, so then 12 months later, then I started into pre-engineering. And so in 12 months, I went from not being able to add fractions, literally, to mm -hmm. then taking um, calculus, chemistry, and physics all in one semester. And so that was quite a transition for a farm boy um, to make that type of a transition, but I did it and survived, mm -hmm. got better and better. <laughs> and and uh, I finally learned how to learn. And, oh, wow. Um, and that was just not something that I took seriously when I was in high school. I was busy doing all things hands-on uh, and didn't really take learning seriously. It's not that I had the inability to learn, but I just didn't apply myself. And things that I 
cared about, I could learn quickly, but I just didn't apply myself in school. And so, uh, so uh, that was my, that was my, my major transition into, um, into the, the engineering world. And actually once I, after the first year or so, I, I got pretty good and had very good grades uh, through college. Um, for, after junior college, I went to Missouri, uh, University of Missouri in Rolla, which is now Missouri Science and Technology, and uh, finished my degree and found uh, a beautiful bride there, married her, and then uh, took my first job with Lexmark out of college. Lexmark is a, a printing company in Lexington, Kentucky, and um, and spent most of my career with them. And... Um, uh, and while I was there, I, uh, I became an inventor multiple times. In fact, my first invention was, I was probably four months, uh, into my new, into my first job as an engineer with Lexmark. And I came up with something, a, a, it was just a solution to a problem. And, um, I, at that time, I didn't even know what a patent was, but I had really good mentors, uh, surrounding me. And, uh, Two of these mentors said, hey, this is a really a good idea. You need to file a patent on this. And I said, well, I don't really know what a patent is, but guide me through the process. And so they helped me. Uh, they improved, helped me to improve the design. They both became co-inventors for my first patent. And that was quite a, pride, a proud moment for me to, uh, to become an inventor for the first time. And um, especially coming from where I came from, you know, a very rural, hands-on type of a, a world. And so I became an inventor many, many times after that. Uh, I now have 25, I think. I kind of lose count after a while. Um, altogether, there's well over 100, I'm sure, um, of patents worldwide. And, uh, and I took an interest in patent law uh, while I was working with the patent attorneys um, on my own inventions. I learned there was such a thing as a patent agent, which at the time I didn't know anything about, where I could become a, a, a patent practitioner and prosecute patents uh, before the USPTO without having a law degree. And that was a really that was a surprise to me. So I looked into it and um, and it was real. And uh, so I talked to my vice president at the time and asked if he would fund my training to become a patent agent. And he said he would. And so um, I did that. And meanwhile, I was still working as an engineer uh, with Lexmark and, and for even years after that. But I took progressively more responsibility for intellectual property matters at Lexmark. And my last three and a half years with the company, I was the worldwide patent manager, which meant that I managed the invention process for the entire company. And I chose to do that from within the engineering department and because the IP law department was always under a budget cut. And given the nature of my job, I could work from any place in the company and do that job as a, uh, as the uh, patent manager. So I stayed in R and D well, and then at some point uh, the, the division that I was working in uh, completely collapsed and uh, they decided to do away with that entire division of the company. And so my fortunes changed with Lexmark. I was laid off in 2012, but that was, you know, a, another turning point for me, but it was actually the best thing that could happen to me because that, that forced me outside of the company that I grew up in and experienced the world in a lot of different ways. And uh, so that's, that's kind of the beginning. Um, and uh, from there I did other jobs. I worked for another technology startup company 
I, I should say I worked for a technology startup company. That was my first one. And, um, and my main job was to assert patents that they had. They, were, they, they suspected that their patents were being infringed. And so my job was to, uh, was to confirm that infringement and then uh, work with outside counsel to assert those patents, uh, which we did and which we won. And, uh, and then I even worked for an insurance company that, uh, that insured intellectual property of all types, patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets. And um, I was an underwriter for them. And that was a lot of fun. And I did that for quite a while. I uh, became a, the underwriting manager and uh, then eventually became vice president of the company. But then there were opportunities for me to go on my own. And I had, I had uh, Tungsten IP, my current company. I had it uh, open at the time that I, in, in fact, prior to going to work for the insurance company. And um, I evolved to the insurance job by actually reaching out to this company to see if I could do any overflow work for them. And uh, they said, well, you know, let's talk about that. Why don't you come by the office? And while you're at it, bring us your resume and let's talk about you know, other things too. And so they, they made, uh, made me an offer. And um, I was there for, with them for five and a half years. Really a lot of fun work. And I realized in working as an insurance underwriter and working with literally hundreds of companies, I don't know, I, I don't I worked with at least 300 companies during that time. It's probably more like 500, but I just don't I just don't know how many companies. But I worked with a lot of good technology companies. And the thing that surprised me was very few technology companies did intellectual property well. And that gave me an appreciation for what I learned when I was at Lexmark, because we were very sophisticated inventors at Lexmark. We knew how to research our own patents before filing. We knew how to read patents. Uh, we knew how to have thoughtful debates with the patent attorneys um, when issues would come up. And we had a management process for vetting invention disclosures, for improving dis invention disclosures before they were filed, and then for working with the attorneys after the inventions were filed and they were being prosecuted. And I didn't have an appreciation for the training that I received at Lexmark until I was an underwriter uh, for intellectual property insurance services and working with these hundreds of, of technology companies that didn't have that type of a background. And so that was, that was an eye opener for me. And in fact, that's one of the things that probably led me to write the book uh, that we'll be talking about in just a few moments. Sounds like an impressive journey. Having your life set out in a way that you thought it was going to happen, like working with your hands uh, from that, you had to transition to find a, a better opportunity. You have to overcome math, which is for me, it's amazing. I am a lawyer, so I <laughs> profoundly uh, hate math. Well, I shouldn't use the word hate, but it's, there's no other way to describe my relationship with math. <laughs> I mean, I can barely do like percentages. It's, it's awful. And the fraction uh, uh, for me, that does, I don't understand what a fraction is. It's or, or how to add or no, 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 no. Life is too short for, for me to know that. <laughs> So I truly admire that you transitioned from 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 that from not knowing uh, to to mastering it. 
and, and to making sure that you achieve your dream. And it's often happens that some people, they just focus on what you don't know instead of looking at your potential. Um, they focus on you. Oh, well, you don't master math. You don't know this. It's like, no, but what are you capable of knowing or understanding of, of developing? So, right. so I'm glad that you didn't uh, follow those advice and you actually went through, <laughs> went through what you wanted to, to do that become an engineer and then uh, a patent agent uh, by, uh, well, let's see by association in a way. <laughs> and then, um, and then enriching our, our, our pattern world with, with your work. So I'm, I'm very grateful that you had that journey. And I do believe that thanks to that journey, you have enriched yourself also in this book uh, because you, you, can, you can see it from the perspective of a non-lawyer, um, non-legal uh, uh, thinking entity, because sometimes we can be a little bit too lawyery or can be too, too unnecessarily technical in certain ways. In your book, I mean, you do have um, the, the technicalities, you do have the processes, but it doesn't feel like an overwhelming law, law book that oh. um, I read all the time, well, <laughs> which is you. quite refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with, with the book, uh, there is a section where I do talk about intellectual property. I have to do that just to set the background because I don't know what the reader knows. And so I would rather have the information there and they could skip a chapter if they choose to. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I tried to keep it as, as brief and, and grounded in reality as I possibly can, because I still remember what it was like learning intellectual property on, uh, on my own. It was basically self-taught other than a six day course. Uh, I'm self-taught and, uh, and it's a challenge. And, um, Inventors really do need to know and understand certain principles of intellectual property. But to your point, uh, they don't need to get into uh, the deep, deep analysis of, of intellectual property that so many uh, so many books and so many law treaties may may choose to to endeavor in. I'm not there to impress anybody. My job is to enable entrepreneurs to think about intellectual property as an asset to their company and uh, give them just enough information to be able to communicate properly with their patent agents or patent attorneys, uh, but to have confidence when they set out to invent something that they can have confidence that they know what the journey is about and that they can go from, from conception to patent with, without any real surprises and and with also having a an objective in mind as to why they choose to file that patent uh, as you know many inventors will file a patent uh, just so they can hang it on their wall and mm -hmm. have pride in the idea that they were an inventor to yeah, me, yeah that's a failure that mm -hmm. is a failure um in, inventions um exist and uh, it, it's great to 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 you know name yourself as an inventor but it's a shame to spend tens of thousands, potentially tens of thousands of dollars to obtain a patent and then hang it on the wall and say, isn't that great? And not know what to do with the patent that they just got. Uh, that's that's a disaster for the entrepreneurial economy in my mind. And for startup companies, um, it's a disaster because they expect that patent to actually advance their their startup company. And if it mm -hmm. doesn't. Then uh, and they recognize, oh, I just wasted all of this money of mine or even worse, wasted somebody else's money that invested in their company. Um, that's that's a failure. 
And so I try to get into, I, I try to, to, to teach not just the idea of, of patents, but why do you want the patent? And uh, let's, let's learn together how to, uh, to think about patents as an asset to the company and not, it's, it's not, the patent is not the goal. A patent is a tool to enable you to, to be able to protect your market share. And so, um, so that's the perspective that I try to take with my book. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. IP is not an end in itself. Uh, you just don't have IP because you can or because uh, you should. It's, it, it has to serve a purpose that is compatible with your business or your, or your endeavor that you're looking uh, to, to achieve. On that uh, note, should an entrepreneur with limited resources invest in a patent? And which factors assess in order to make that decision? Sure. So should an investor invest in a patent? And the answer is with anything, this is, this is my standard answer with any type of a legal question. The answer is it depends. To, but more to the point, should, should someone invest in a patent? And uh, I would say that if the entrepreneur requires market exclusivity, with their design or their invention. And if the invention is truly novel, then I believe that they should invest in a patent. Those are, those are both two very uh, distinct criteria, having first market exclusivity and, and novelty. But in my opinion, those are the two key questions that should be answered before anyone files a patent. And with respect to how do we help them decide, the first thing uh, to do would be, of course, a market analysis. Is there really a need for the product that I've invented? And why do I feel like I need market exclusivity? And if those two questions can be answered with confidence, uh, where the answer is, yes, I know that my product fits into a specific part of the market. And I need exclusivity because if I don't, then um, my product is going to be too easily uh, uh, copied. And I'm going to be working with competing designs in the marketplace and fighting them off all of the time. That would be a legitimate answer for, um, for arguing for market exclusivity. And so if you can answer that, then the next question would be to focus on prior art and um, to, to answer the question, is the is the invention truly novel? The only way to know that is to do a prior art search. And I believe that every, every entrepreneur needs to understand what prior art is and be able to search that on their own. This is not, this is something that can be outsourced, but mm -hmm. there's too much to be learned by doing our own prior art searches. So for example, if an entrepreneur is searching for a, a cell phone case, for example. Maybe they have a, an idea for a cell phone case. They learn that prior art can be anything from a patent or a product or a publication. And so they search competing products and then they discover, oh, there's already a product out there like my invention. Okay, that means that their, their invention is not novel. They should not spend money on the patent. But when they're doing the research, they may also discover something else. It may be that they discover that, oh, uh, the reviews on the product that I was going to market 
are not very good. There's limitations with the design that I had in mind. And now they can look at, they, they can basically do their own market research uh, by looking at the reviews of the product they intended on filing a patent for. And then instead, they can, they can file an improvement patent that, that improves on their original idea and, and, uh, and then market that improved product. So now they have a better chance of market success because they have done the research themselves and they learn how to pivot from one concept to another. And so I'm, I'm a strong proponent of every entrepreneur learning how to do that prior art search. Now, the example I gave was with uh, uh, products in the market, but it still applies when you're researching patents. And for something like a cell phone case, the entrepreneur is going to have to learn how to do a, a, a search for uh, utility patents, but also design patents. And we haven't talked about the difference between those two. I don't know if your audience needs to hear that or not, but... Yes, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you uh, um, some follow-up questions. Like, can you define for us what is prior oh, art? Sure. And which tools do you recommend for someone who is not necessarily knowledgeable of patent sure. law? So um, which tools do I recommend? Um, I typically go to Google patents a lot. And uh, mm -hmm. Google's taken over the world. Uh, we can't help that. <laughs> <laughs> and they do have, they do have a, 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 a pretty decent patent search uh, system that's available. It's got its limitations, and sometimes it may not find a patent when it should, but it's not bad. And it's a good first place to start for people that are just doing a search. But there's other tools that are available that are probably perhaps a little higher quality, um, and they're still free. One of those is called the Lens, and this is a... A, a prior art search tool out of Australia. And uh, it used to be called the patent lens, um, but it's now called the lens. And, and you can also search other than patents, you can search using the same search string for non-patent prior art as well. And by the way, uh, Google Patents also has a function there where you can search for non-patent prior art in their search engine too. So there's two examples. Uh, a third example is called Free Patents Online. Free patents online, you're able to set up an account, even, even while it's still free, and to, uh, to save your searches so you can go back to those and, and you know, uh, determine you know, what was your search algebra at the time that you searched and that type of thing. So it has certain advantages. And, um, and so those are three uh, good search engines that I would recommend someone learn how to use. Uh, any of those um, is a good starting point. And so, uh, uh, what was your, I'm sorry, I got so involved in that in answering the question. <laughs> I don't recall the other one. Um, can you define what is prior art? Uh, yes. <laughs> so prior art is a patent or a product or a publication that would, would render an entrepreneur's invention to not be novel. And so keep in mind that novelty is... And of course, I know you know this, but speaking to your audience, mm -hmm. novelty only comes once. And so an invention can only be an invention the first time. Uh, and for it to be an invention, it has to be novel and it has to be not obvious. Uh, in other words, not an obvious variant of something that already exists. And so uh, so it, it has to be novel. Um, and uh, and that novelty is determined by whether there is a patent that that teaches 
uh, your invention or whether there's a publication, which can be a research paper, or it can be an article in Popular Mechanics, uh, or it can be uh, anything in print uh, anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so those are examples of prior art that can, uh, that can prevent one from obtaining a patent. It's really important, again, for the, for the inventors to know how to search that so they can make that determination on their own. Oh, I should, I should, I should actually correct myself. I would argue that an inventor that, that thinks that they found something that is, uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a discipline analysis process involved in determining whether something truly is prior art or not. So if there's any doubt in the mind of the, of the inventor, they should get a second opinion. That's that's just a sidebar. Uh, but uh, and I and I've seen that before where I've had inventors come to me and, and say, I don't think that we can patent this because of. Well, um, there was a, there was still perhaps a lot of invention left. Maybe the prior they found was something related to one aspect of their invention. But there might have been three or four aspects to their invention that would still be novel. And so uh, so having that second opinion can be very helpful. Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law. Plain talk about intellectual property. And with that in mind, so um, we have an invention that is novel, it's non-obvious, and it has industrial applicability, the, the, the last uh, condition that we didn't uh, talk about, uh, that it could be applied to any industry. How do you secure a patent? What is the path? or the most likely path that we'd, uh, we, we will need to follow in order to secure a patent? Is there a bulletproof way to, to get a patent or is it always a gamble when you apply for one? Uh, it's always a gamble. Um, <laughs> so here, here's the path and we'll talk about the probabilities uh, as we go. So the path for obtaining a patent, uh, in my mind, is that the inventor is responsible for uh, writing the invention disclosure. And it might be a three or four page summary of their invention, maybe including some pictures or napkin sketches or something. And then hopefully they would uh, engage the services of a patent attorney or patent agent to help them to write a patent application. But in my mind, the inventor is responsible for the first step to document as much as they know and then to engage the services of someone that can help them to write either a provisional application or a non-provisional application um, or a design application, if it's something that's ornamental. And, um, and then work with the patent attorney or patent agent to file the patent application. And, and then there's a waiting period. It may wait two to three years before they ever hear back from the patent office. And it can be unnerving while that time is going by. And it can just take uh, some lengthy time period before they hear back from the patent office. When they do, it will be, it will almost always be like a punch in the gut because the patent examiner will likely say your claims are not novel uh, for these reasons. These certain claims are obvious uh, for these reasons. And, um, but it will be a, what is called a nine non-final office action. At that point, it's really important to understand the validity of their arguments and to work with someone that's very experienced to, to draft a response to the, uh, to the patent office and work with the inventor on that response because that response, in part, may include 
canceling of claims. If there is, if the examiner is not right, if, if they're incorrect in their analysis, then it's up to the patent attorney to, to point that out. But the patent examiners are pretty good and they may identify prior art for say claim one of your patent, which is your typically your broadest claim. And they may, they may identify prior art that says that your patent is not, is not novel uh, for certain reasons. And so then uh, between the inventor and, the, and the, the patent attorney, then you would work together on deciding, well, is claim two adequate? Is, if, if that has been allowed, then, uh, then maybe you, you're going to have to get used to the idea that you're not going to get the broadest claim, but a more narrow claim two, which was likely a, a claim that depends from claim one. And so there's this negotiation process that happens between the inventor and the, and the patent attorney that's based uh, 100% on the feedback that's been received by the patent office. It's, it's important to understand that the patent prosecution process is an adversarial process, which means it's the job of the patent examiner to tell you why you cannot have a patent. And if someone, an inventor can write and file their own patent application, but when it gets to that point, that's when it gets very real. And many people that write their own applications will make mistakes. And all of those mistakes will become readily apparent once they get the office response back from the examiner. And their inexperience will be a real problem when it comes time to respond to the patent examiner. And uh, it's not, that's not the time to be doing it on your own. And so having a good uh, patent attorney or patent agent that's got a lot of experience in working with the office is extremely important because uh, keeping in mind that uh, the job of the patent uh, examiner is to keep you from getting a patent unless you can overcome all of their arguments. So that's a very lengthy process. You may not hear back from the patent office for two years, and then you get a first response, and then you respond back to that. Then you might get a second response. And, and as I understand, the statistics are that about 50% of patents will get a, a final uh, rejection, which means that at least some of the claims of the patent will not be allowed, period. And then the, uh, the inventor is left with a choice. Do they continue arguing through a request for continued examination or do they appeal if they feel like that the examiner is just not understanding it? And, um, and all of those are questions that need specific guidance from someone that understands the process. Uh, again, like a patent attorney or a patent agent. And so just, just that prosecution time period from the time that you first hear back from the patent office to the time that you might receive a patent maybe yet another year. And so it's a very lengthy process. It's an adversarial process and it's also very expensive, but that is the process. Now, now what I described is for, is for a, a utility patent application, which is also called a non-provisional patent application. The process is a little bit more predictable uh, and, and much shorter if it's a design patent but for a non-provisional or utility patent application, that typically is a process. Not uncommon to see from the filing date of a patent to the final issue date to be easily three years. And what is the difference between a design patent and a utility one? So a design patent protects the ornamental look of an invention. 
an example, I, I have a I have one of my smoke detectors sitting on my desk uh, to remind me to replace the batteries and put them back up on the ceiling. Someone can obtain a patent for uh, the look of that smoke detector that will mount on the ceiling. It might uh, have certain curved shapes to it. It might have a rectangular shape with certain accent shapes to it. But that that the look of that smoke detector can be uh, protected with a design patent. A classic example of a design patent is uh, the Chevrolet Corvette. Beautiful, beautiful car. Um, there are plenty of design patents that protect the the look of a Corvette. Um, and so that's that that's an example of a design patent. Utility patents or non-provisional patents, those protect the functionality of something. So if I use the smoke alarm example, the look would be protected by a design patent. But it might be the electronics or the sensors that have a, a very specific function to them it is capable of, of sensing both smoke and carbon dioxide. That would be the subject matter that you would typically see in a, in a utility patent. Thank you for clarifying that. What do you do or what should one do when you find out that someone is infringing your patent after Going through that lengthy process, finally securing your patent, what can and then you learn that someone else um, in the market is uh, profiting from your invention in in an unlawful way. Sure. Um, what should you do in that moment? Well, the first thing is to to get the right mentality. Um, I've dealt a lot with litigation through the years, and the first mistake that most inventors make when it comes to infringement decisions is that they start thinking like a schoolyard bully instead of a businessman. Their first reaction is they're infringing my patent. I've got to go get them. I've got to make them pay. That's the wrong thought process. The The right thought process to think is to, is to determine how much is it going to cost to take action against this this person or this company? And how much am I going to lose if I don't take action? And you make a business choice based on that. Sometimes if someone is infringing your patent, it's a small company that's not likely going to be chipping into your market share by very much. It might be that you just let that go and not assert the patent because patent assertion or patent litigation can be very, very expensive. But fortunately, that litigation process comes in stages and must include a patent attorney. And this is an area where I should point out to all of uh, those listening that patent agents cannot help you when it comes to patent litigation matters. That's, that's something that only patent attorneys can help you with. And so the first step is to contact a patent attorney, probably multiple patent attorneys, get an idea of, of how they charge, what their rates are, Patent litigation attorneys can have rates that range from $300 an hour to well over $1,000 an hour. And some types of cases they won't take. Uh, if, if there's not a lot of, of money in controversy, and if they are asked to take it on contingency, where they're not getting paid by the hour billed every month, then, the, uh, then, then there may be se several attorneys that say, this is a case that I don't want. Have a good day. And um, and so it's a, it's a challenge sometimes just to find the right attorney that will work with you uh, based on your volumes, your revenue, um, how much money is, is at stake um, that, you know, is this is the infringement going to result in 
potential award damages of $5 million, $10 million? Or is it going to be a small amount of only $10,000, $15,000? And you don't even have the money to pay the attorney for the small case. It's a challenge to get good representation in those scenarios. But as a minimum, the inventor uh, that holds that patent that's being infringed can at least send a notice of infringement to the infringer and, uh, and, and make them aware of a patent and, um, and, and demand that they stop shipping that product. Now, that doesn't come without risk. It could be that, um, that the, the one that's infringing may file a declaratory judgment that basically triggers you into, into litigation in the, the district that they're interested in, in hearing the litigation. When, when it comes time to assert one's patent, it's a business decision 100% of the time. And the inventor that holds that patent has to know what they're doing and to make a decision without any emotion of any kind to make the right decision. Now, that said, 80% of the, the lawsuits that are asserted by small inventors will be emotionally driven. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it many, many times, pr- probably literally 50 times. I've seen emotionally d- driven decisions to assert uh, their patent against a competitor. Um, and only of those 50 times, uh, uh, maybe five at the most, 10 of those made sense from a business decision. By the time they took into account the risk of a declaratory judgment that would work against them or uh, the, the amount of money that they would spend with a, with a law firm or the amount of time that they would be distracted from their business by, by pursuing this competitor. All of these things are factors and, and need to be thought about very carefully. And so uh, the, the first step, though, of course, as I mentioned, um, you, you have to, you know, if you choose to do anything at all, the first step is to notify uh, the infringing party and give them a chance to, to no longer offer that product. But it may be that they, they feel like that they want to fight you a little while. And it may be that you have to, to assert your patent in court against them. And uh, so it's, uh, it's uh, patent litigation is something to be taken very, very seriously. And, uh, but that's really, that's the point of having the patent in the first place is getting to that point. You don't get a patent just to hang on your wall and to be proud of. You get a mm-hmm. patent. So if someone infringes, you can do something about it. The more that the inventor understands about litigation and the risk of litigation, I feel like the better inventor they become. The sooner that an inventor can start thinking like a businessman about their invention, about whether to file a patent, and then whether to assert, the better. Because again, this is all high-risk stuff. The likelihood of getting a patent in the first place, I don't think that I mentioned this, but it depends on the, on the art unit. But for many of the, of the technologies, the common mechanical and electrical technologies, uh, the likelihood of obtaining a patent at all is probably on the order of 60 to 80%. Um, if it's a business method patent or artificial intelligence, then the likelihood of obtaining that patent is probably more like 20%. Let's say that, you, that you've taken your gamble and you've you put all of that time and money into getting a patent. You're, you're actually gaining market share. You've developed a, a business around the patent and now you have an infringer. You still have to keep your cool and you still have to make very good decisions as to whether you're going to be asserting that patent or not. And if you choose to do that, you need to go into it with your eyes wide open that you're now going to be engaging with at least tens of thousands of dollars at stake, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars at stake Mm -hmm. as you assert that patent. Yeah. Just to keep in mind that it's a business decision 
And it is not just the passion behind um, this person is doing something wrong to me. I need to make this right. It's hard to divide because usually entrepreneurs uh, see their enterprises are the babies and the innovations are the babies. Um, so it's it's a tough decision. I totally agree with you that you need to be, uh, you put your business hat on and, and think with that one, not with the passion or, or the, the sentiment behind your invention. Yes, I, I've seen that go wrong so many times. And in fact, I've seen, I've seen companies go broke by asserting their patents. Wow, and that's a that's a terrible thing, but um, it's it's happened and it will continue to happen while they're losing market share. They're also spending a huge amount of money hoping to get uh, a fair hearing from from a court uh, that mm -hmm. there's an infringement, and they're hoping to get uh, the uh, the court to see it their way. Uh, but it's the the problem with patents is. Um, Patents, utility patents are the scope of protection is words. It's not it's not a picture of the product and uh, for, for utility patents, at least. And those words can be interpreted many different ways. And you would be surprised at how many ways that the words of, of an entrepreneur's patent can be interpreted until you actually assert that in court. That's one thing. But then the other part of it is that if you assert that patent in court, then the opposing party, the one that's infringing, is likely going to spend a lot of money trying to undermine the credibility of the patent mm -hmm. to find some prior art reference that was ignored by the patent office when they examined it and to use that, that prior art against the inventor to say that the patent should have never issued in the first place. The patent is invalid because this prior art was not found. A decision had never been made on this prior art. We're arguing that the patent is invalid. And yeah, that, right. that's a typical defense. That is the typical yes. defense. Um, you you accuse me of infringing. I accuse you of invalidity. So that's that's the common the common conversation how yes. it goes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're right. The uh, the opposing party may be correct in their analysis, mm -hmm. or they can at least make a strong enough argument that that the uh, the judge believes them. And even though and it, and it may be that they're wrong, but um, the the likelihood of asserting a patent and that that patent surviving all of the claims surviving in that patent and the the inventor actually getting dam a damage award uh, for the damages caused by the infringing party the odds aren't i don't know what the odds are but they're not 100% and so that's a risk that the 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 uh, the inventor takes as well it could be that they assert their patent in good faith that they're going to be compensated for the damage caused by the infringer. And the final result is they may get an invalid patent as a result and no damages back. Yeah. And meanwhile, they've, they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on attorneys and court fees and, mm -hmm. and uh, a loss to their business yeah. while they're diverting their attention away from the business and, mm -hmm. uh, and having nothing to show for that. So it's, it's not bulletproof path forward when an inventor decides to assert their patents. And, and that's why the most important skill set at that point is having a calm business head and, and being able to make decisions based on the specific facts uh, that their, their very competent patent attorney can help them with. And on the other side, um, how not to infringe someone else's patent? 
what steps uh, should we should we take or what should we avoid? I've been in this situation many times uh, because with when I was employed with Lexmark, there were thousands of patents that were always in force. And when I was there, uh, inkjet printing, which was uh, the, the field that I worked in, inkjet printing was relatively new. And so the, the technology was growing and maturing and patents being filed literally by the thousands per year among all of the competitors for improvements to an inkjet cartridge or improvements to an ink printer. And so we did spend a lot of time studying competitors' patents and trying to design around those. So that's the first skill set, I believe, that is important for a for an inventor to have if they're going to be inventing in a technology area where there are potentially other competing patents. If that patent is still in force, in other words, the patent is not expired, then, well, and in fact, that's part of the skill set too, is to just be able to calculate the expiration date of the patent. And it's, sometimes it's not trivial. So if the patent is not expired, then how do you design around that? How do you interpret the scope of a protection that the competitor has based on that set of words that's embodied in, in a claim? And it's, it's a very detailed analysis, and I'm sure it's beyond the scope of what we should talk about here. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a skill set that every entrepreneur should seek to obtain. Uh, I try to speak to this at some length in my book. Mm-hmm to uh, to to be sure that that skill set is is at least recognized by the inventors. It's definitely not um, a complete body of work to 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 completely teach someone how to invent around or I'm sorry to, to design around someone else's patent. It will hopefully get them started on the right path to designing around other patents by thinking about each and every claim element. And um, the basic analysis is that, uh, for there to be infringement, of course, the patent still needs to be enforced. But the second, the second part of the analysis is that for there to be infringement, the design around uh, should not satisfy each and every claim element of the competing claim. If there's any one claim element that is not satisfied, then there is no infringement. You, you might have multiple claim elements that, that further that define and further define what is the scope of protection that has been allowed uh, to to your to the opposing patent. And let's say that one of those claim elements is that it's in the shape of a triangle, but then you design it to be a square, but still maintain the functionality. All the other claim elements are the same, but instead of your invention or your design around being a triangle, it's a square instead, then that patent would not infringe or that invention or that design would not infringe. And so it's that basic analysis that uh, where we would understand that each and every claim element must be infringed for there to be infringement of, of the entire claim. So that's that's the starting point for that. But it does get into a lot of other aspects as, as well, like uh, doctrine of equivalence and and other detailed analyses. Yes, um, you can talk a bit about um, about those those two doctrines. So, um, to have a broader understanding. Sure. So, a uh, doctrine of equivalence recognizes that a a design around may do the same thing, uh, have the same functionality, achieved in the same way um, as the claimed invention, but it may be slightly different but it still accomplishes the functionality in such a similar way that the courts may argue the competing design 
infringes under the doctrine of equivalence. Um, so finally, can you tell us what is a patent strategy? And please give us some examples. Uh, my perspective on, on patent strategy is um, that for every patent application that is filed, there really needs to be a, a strategic objective that is served by that patent filing, keeping in mind what a patent actually does and does not do for the patent owner. The patent provides exclusivity to the patent owner or to uh, the licensees that the patent uh, ha has enabled. It is possible to license a patent to others. But uh, aside from that, the, the exclusivity provided by a patent is to prevent others from making, using, um, selling, importing into the country where the patent is, exists, uh, the, the claims of that finally issued uh, patent. And so that's what a patent is intended to do. A patent does not protect necessarily a product unless, that, unless there's a patent for that entire product. A patent will protect uh, the invention as defined by the claims, which can be a subset of the product. And in many cases for high-tech, well, for high-tech technology um, applications like a cell phone or um, a complex electronic device, it's very unlikely that there will be one patent that will protect that entire product. It's going to be a subset of that. So keeping in mind what a patent is and is not, uh, that it provides uh, exclusivity for a limited time for others to copy that design in some form. With, with that in mind, a patent strategy should involve the business strategy for that entrepreneur's company, help to serve the business strategy in a way that a patent can serve that business strategy by, for example, let's say that, uh, let's say that a, a, a business strategy is going to be to enter a certain specific market niche uh, in a certain way. And the patent strategy then should help the, the entrepreneur to achieve that, that specific business goal, given the constraints of what the patent can and cannot do. And so if the goal is for a business to enter a specific niche market, then the patent strategy should be designed in such a way to preserve that niche market from keeping competitors from coming in and taking over that, that niche market that uh, perhaps on, on the day that they chose to pursue that, maybe that niche was not even noticeable on the market, but it was noticed by the inventors first. So they patented products. So once they entered that, that new market niche, then they're protected from others coming in and taking that niche away from them. So the patent strategy starts with understanding the strengths and weaknesses of a patent. And it starts with understanding what your business strategy is. And then the patent strategy should serve the business strategy. That's different, I think, than what you'll read in a lot of books on patent strategy. Uh, patent mm -hmm. strategy typically is uh, you should file in these countries or yeah. um, you, should, you should take this certain approach to get your patents fast. Those, in my mind, are not strategies at all. Those are just tactics. Mm -hmm. It's just tactics to, to accomplish a specific goal, but it doesn't serve a broad purpose that enables the business to, to achieve what the business is all about. I think perhaps because I, I came from a different perspective on, on patents, starting again, starting you know, with my hands-on uh, talents, mm -hmm. evolving as an engineer. And, and by the way, we haven't mentioned this, but I've also been involved in several startup companies, both consulting to, to startup companies and also being a co-owner of several startup companies myself. 
I'm very careful about how we spend our patent dollars. And, and I will always recommend that we spend the hard-earned patent dollars after we understand our business strategy. And if that patent can help us achieve that business strategic goal. And if we can do that, then I'm all in favor of filing that patent to, to serve that, that, uh, that business goal. And what would you say to the entrepreneur that is sitting in his desk, looking at his invention, her invention or the invention, and trying to figure out what to do next? What will be the very, very first step uh, that you will give to this person that is um, on the brick of uh, trying to implement the, its innovation? Again, I think that the first thing is to start with the market. Um, they need to understand the market because the patent, the patent, even if they obtain the patent, that patent will not have any value to them if there's no market that exists or mm -hmm. if the, the, the market maturity curve is passed. So one example of that would be uh, buggy whips um, used a lot back in the days when we used to ride horses. But if someone comes up with a, an improved buggy whip, they're probably not going to be able to enjoy a, 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 a large enough market to make that a full time business. They might be able to patent the buggy whip and to uh, and it would only be an improvement because of all of the prior art that exists to begin with. So it's only going to be a narrow niche patent. Um, and if they try to develop a, a business around that that improvement to a buggy whip, it's not likely going to be something that scales to be a multimillion dollar business. It can be a hobby level business, but it's not going to be a multimillion dollar business. And so they have to think about the market first. And where do they want to be spending their time? If they want it to be a multi-million dollar business, but it's a limited market, then maybe they should not file that patent at all. But if it's, for example, if it's a, 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 an improvement to cooling um, a computer processor with, uh, with less volume, without, uh, without uh, fluid flow, without all the other limitations of how you cool uh, computers these days, Well, that might have a huge opportunity uh, for um, uh, for server farms where the biggest problem for a server farm is not is not the computing power. They can just buy more computing power. But now they have to spend a lot of money cooling the, the, the air volume where all of these uh, servers are housed. Um, and so uh, having a, a, a computer processor that can be that can run it. 30% less heat than some than something uh, the state of the art that's in the market. Now that's an invention that can scale very quickly. And so thinking about the market first and thinking about the market opportunity before you think about the patent, I think is always a good first step. But if it passes a market test, then again, the next step is to, to at least give a cursory look uh, of whether that that invention has been patented or there are competing patents or competing products that is uh, that would undermine the patentability of that of that invention. If those if both answers come back favorable, that there's a favorable market and that there is a favorable uh, patent landscape where it's likely that they might obtain reasonably broad claims for their patent. That's the point at which I think it makes sense to start thinking about filing a patent. So the first thing would be educate yourself first on the market that where your invention will be more likely to be in. And after that market assessment, then you, you try to find if 
if it's truly uh, a novelty what you have created? Both of those questions in my mind should be answered before uh, there would be a decision to to spend money on a patent application. Yes, for sure, definitely. And then, of course, recognizing that the the process of obtaining that patent is not a certainty. Mm-hmm. There's probabilities that are associated with that based in part on the technology and uh, the amount of money that it takes to go from patent application to issued patent it can can vary widely. And so, um, you know, having that discussion with their patent attorney to to determine what not only is the cost of filing the application, but what in their mind would be the, the total cost of obtaining that patent uh, with all of the probabilities built in that, for example, maybe there's a request for continued examination that needs to be filed in 20% or 30% of the cases. How is that going to be affecting the total cost of the patent? What if we have to go through an appeal process? How would that affect the total cost of the patent? And all of those scenarios should be uh, in the mind of the, of the inventor before they make a decision to file. So having that good, thoughtful conversation with their patent attorney before spending the first dollar on the patent application uh, is very helpful uh, because I've seen I've seen many, many inventors be surprised that they have spent twenty or even thirty thousand dollars to obtain a patent. And and unfortunately, I've seen those same inventors where they finally got got a patent in hand and not quite sure what to do with it next. Where they've got this idea that if they get a patent, then the market will come to them. And <laughs> Everything is going to happen by itself. <laughs> That's a, the odds are almost <laughs> zero that that would happen to them. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't apply to build it and they will come. That, that is correct. <laughs> idea. That is correct. I think I do think that many inventors uh, feel like that if they get a patent, then somebody's going to know about it and somebody will call them and pay them a million dollars. No. Uh, and by the way, those that those that pursue a patent with licensing in mind, and, and I'm on I'm on several Facebook groups related to inventing, and this question comes up probably. Uh, five times a week. Mm-hmm. I've got this idea and I want to get a patent and I want to license it. Somebody tell me what the process is. The likelihood of of someone being willing to to license your patent depends on a lot of things. There are there are certainly companies that are interested in, in doing that. And there are good companies that help advise inventors um, if that's what they want is a licensing agreement. And I don't want to take anything away from those companies, but um, it is, if, if you look at a uh, hundred ideas or a thousand ideas, just to, to get a statistically significant number in front of us. And when you look at the number of license agreements that will come out of those, that thousand ideas, assuming that someone files at least a provisional patent application and then seeks a license uh, for their for their idea, I don't know what the number is, but I would I would be sure that out of a thousand ideas, that there would be less than fifty license agreements that would come out of the, that original thousand. That's not very high odds, and uh, and there's a lot of things that can go wrong uh, with a scenario like that. For example, one thing that can go wrong is that someone be, would be ill advised for their technology improvement. Somebody may be ill advised to file a design patent. And then some, someone may try to license the design patent for a technology feature, not for an ornamental feature. And no one's going to pay you for that because that, that design patent is essentially valueless. 
and to, to put it bluntly, a complete waste of time and, and complete waste of money. And so that's one example of, of how things go wrong for novice inventors that are looking for that licensing bug. That's uh, uh, it's the, the odds are not high. Although with the right guidance, the odds can be improved. It's not a bad game to play for someone that may be interested in trying to get licensed deals. Maybe they have an improvement to a squirt gun, for example. They could file a provisional patent application for that squirt gun and then try to find someone um, through the help of, of good people that know what they're doing to, to, uh, uh, to find a license for that improvement to a squirt gun. And it might work out. I, I, I'm familiar with a patent that was, believe it or not, it was a, uh, it was a fake pumpkin and was, uh, was designed so people could carve a pumpkin for Halloween without all the mess mm-hmm. of a real pumpkin. Well, I will pay for <laughs> and, that. And when I first heard about <laughs> that, I thought, what a silly idea. Until I realized pumpkins are, are very seasonal. They can get damaged in shipping. They can rot. Mm-hmm. And some people don't like, you know, they're not used to getting their hands dirty like that, reaching inside and pulling out all the ick from inside of a pumpkin. Yeah. So yeah. Somebody invented an improvement to a pumpkin. And, <laughs> and through an attorney friend of mine, they, they got a very lucrative licensing agreement for this fake pumpkin. And, and it, it took me a while to process that. Mm-hmm. Before I realize, yeah, I guess that really was a good idea. I probably, even if I came up with the idea, I would have dismissed it and probably never filed a patent application because I just come from a different mindset. Yes, it's of okay course. To get your hands dirty once, <laughs> but um, th- th- that's an example of where it can work. I think that the inventors were advised by uh, my attorney friend, which is a very competent attorney, from the very beginning, where mm-hmm. they could. Uh, they probably uh, knew that there was going to be a market. Maybe they had a connection in the market before they sought a license agreement. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and there's several, there's several opportunities for things to go well if you're advised properly from the very beginning, but there's a lot of places it can go wrong. If all you do is come up with an idea, file a patent application for it, and then hope somebody's going to come beating on your door uh, with a checkbook in their hand. It's not likely going to work out very well. It's not by magic. It's not going to happen like just, okay, I have a patent and everything solved. Now I can just sit back and enjoy uh, success. It's not like that. Uh, But I would love to get that pumpkin because I'm a city girl. (laughs) So for me, getting my hands dirty, it's... uh, uh, is I, I will do it, but it's debatable. Uh-huh. <laughs> I will I will eventually do it if I have to, but uh, yeah, you, you no. would do it, but you'd rather not. And if there was exactly. a, a cost alternative, you're all for it, right? Yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to do it. And to imagine, like, I mean, I, I'm not eating the pumpkin, so it, it's it's a waste. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That is true. So, yeah, oh, and, and I, I, it took me it. I don't know. I, I think. When I heard that story, it took me overnight to process mm-hmm. that before I finally realized, huh, maybe that was a good idea. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's just interesting. It's, but, uh, yeah, it's funny because it's, it's from the different mindsets. That's how <laughs> it is. And, yeah. and that's where a lot of inventions come from. It comes mm-hmm. from just very different ways of looking at a problem. And for me, there's certain problems that I'll never recognize but others uh, will identify it to be a problem that is also the same problem, maybe for millions of others yeah. uh, that, that I, I won't notice. 
I'm a pretty good inventor and I'm a, I'm, I'm a very disciplined inventor and, and I'm very objective in my inventions, but oh my goodness, there are so many good ideas that um, I will never think about because I just have a certain paradigm. I have a certain mentality. And uh, so that's the cool thing about the business of inventing is that it doesn't require someone uh, that's a patent agent to be the inventor. It doesn't require an engineer to be an inventor. It doesn't require somebody that can read and write to be an inventor. Anyone can be an inventor. That, that's beautiful. It's true um, that intellectual property doesn't discriminate against uh, who is behind it. It's just it's assess the invention itself. Inventing is, is kind of the great equalizer. There was a gentleman up in Holland, Michigan, and I almost went to work for this company. Um, his name was his last name was Prince. And the, the name of his company was called Prince Incorporated. And he was the inventor of the vanity mirror uh, that came out on the Cadillacs back in like the early 70s, maybe the late 60s. And it was a very simple idea where um, on the passenger side, uh, you could you could uh, rotate your 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 uh, um, your your sunshade. Uh, that's not the right word for it. Uh, your sun visor. Visor. Yeah. Your sun visor down, and then and then flip a little lid up, and that lid would expose a mirror. And then when you flip that lid up, it would also turn on a light, mm-hmm. where someone that's in the riding in the passenger seat could check their makeup or. Um, to check their hair before they get to their destination. They <laughs> called that a vanity mirror. And uh, that was invented by Mr. Prince. And that became the, the, the beginning of him starting a company where he sold that to, um, to the auto uh, manufacturers. He set up a manufacturing line to manufacture that. And when I, I interviewed for a job there um, as an engineer before I became a patent agent, and he had developed that into a multi-billion dollar company and, uh, and had done extremely well. And but when I was there, it, it had evolved well beyond um, sun visors and that type of thing. They did complete automotive interiors, steering wheels, uh, uh, ceiling panels, uh, floorboards, seats. Uh, they designed all of the automotive interiors. And, uh, and I remember walking through, they had their own showroom of cars with these different interior concepts uh, that were fully designed and available for people from the automotive industry to come and visit and and look at some of the concepts. And I got to look at those cars and the the different concepts that they were entertaining. And uh, it was just absolutely impressive. Uh, Very, very impressive. But it all started with a single idea and uh, and somebody that had the, the courage and the initiative to take that idea and take a chance. Uh, on getting a patent and then take a chance on, uh, on working with the automotive manufacturers in Detroit. And, uh, and he did extremely well. And that's, that's kind of the American dream Yeah, for many people. That American dream does start with an idea that results in a patent that results in exclusivity of a market niche. And that's really cool. That sounds like, like the best success story regarding a patent and how something so unique uh, and something so specific has a vanity mirror, yes. which I use all the time. <laughs> and I'm very thankful for that invention. Yes. And, and when you think about all the things that we use in our life with our cell phones, mm-hmm. or, uh, yeah. even our, our drinking cups, um, I've got mm. 
I've got a Yeti drinking cup that's on my desk. And that's a relatively new, um, it, it's an old technology that's been reimagined. And yeah. there are a few patents for that drinking cup. I've looked them up. It doesn't give them an exclusive right to the entire concept of a, of a, of a double walled drinking cup. But the way that they've reimagined the product, they've been able to create a very lucrative market niche uh, that's extended beyond cups now to coolers and uh, even cases, you know, camera cases, I think, you know, they're in, in, in those kind of markets now too, if I'm not mistaken. And so that again, started with just a, a different way of thinking and then obtaining what patent coverage you could obtain and then building a business around it. Yeah. There, there's so many great patents. It's, um, I don't know if you know this, but there's like a little handle that you carry around and you can use that handle to put on a table. So your handbag doesn't touch the floor. Oh. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, it's like it has like a type of weight. So you put it on the table and then it has a little hanger. And from there you put your handbag and it doesn't touch the floor, which is a problem that all women have. Right. <laughs> and especially uh, in my culture, putting your, your handbag in the floor it's bad luck. It means that you're going to run out of money. Oh, that's, that's Yeah. So when I, when I learn about this, okay, I need like seven of this now. <laughs> and that, that's a very simple uh, idea, but, but mm -hmm. still could probably benefit from a patent to, to satisfy, you know, their market niche and to give them protection so they can keep the, uh, the competitors at bay. Yeah, exactly. So Curtis, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, your book, Patent Strategy for Entrepreneurs, can be found on Amazon. Um, only one click buy. That's how I did it. Um, and you have it on your Kindle. Uh, but where can we find you? Where can we um, contact you? So uh, you can contact me through my website. Um, I have tungstenip.com. Tungsten is spelled just like the metal. D-U-N-G-S-T-E-N-I-P. And that's one website. I have another website that I'm developing for an online product I'll be launching, and, and that website is called inventiongarage.com. I'll, uh, I'll be launching educational products for entrepreneurs that want to learn more about the invention process and about what they can do as, a, as an entrepreneur to improve their chances of, uh, of succeeding in the, the patent marketplace. And so I'll be providing uh, educational products through inventiongarage.com. So either of those, um, and then my, my, my email address will be listed on both of those websites. Uh, but uh, I'll also give that to you. Uh, Curtis at inventiongarage.com will get right to me. From anyone, if anyone wants to talk about their invention, I, I, I would welcome anyone to uh, send me an email and I'd be happy to speak with them. Perfect. Thank you so much, Curtis. Uh, thank you for your time and hope everything is well back home. Thank you. And I appreciate the time. Yes, me too. It was a, a great talk and, and very enriching. So I learned a lot from this talk. Thank you. You're kind. Thank you so much. And so we come to the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IPW week. Goodbye from Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. 
Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020.